All right, here we are. Welcome to the uh, Friday Q&A, which we do every so often. <laughs> it's kind of like every other Friday at the moment. Hopefully we'll get back up to every Friday once uh, I'm able to do that. But right now, our first question for today comes in um, with the following conundrum. It says, how do you reconcile the New Testament's clear teachings to love and pray for our enemies with Psalms like 69 verses 22 through 28? I'll get into that Psalm in a second. Is there ever a time when we should pray against our enemies? Now, Psalm 62 is one of what we call uh, an imprecatory Psalm. It's a Psalm that uh, imprecatory means like to, to bring a, a, a curse or, you know, bad consequences onto somebody. And so there's there's psalms, there's like seven or so, seven, eight of them that people will class as imprecatory psalms. This is one of them. And there's others where in the psalm, somewhere in the psalm, you know, there's 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 a statement where it's like asking for God to cause harm to someone. And yet Jesus said for us to pray for our enemies, bless those who curse us, um, you know, that we should, we love our enemies rather, bless those who curse us, pray for those who persecute us. So this is yeah, this is, this is a bit of a conundrum. Let's let's look at the passage, and I'm going to walk you guys through like a bunch of specifics on this, kind of a quick, uh, a short version of a primer on imprecatory psalms, and at least some answers that I think I have on these issues, um, that I think the scripture has on these issues that I'm aware of. And I'll leave you to further your research on your own. So let's look at the text. This is Psalm 69. After talking earlier in the psalm about a bunch of pain he's experienced and wrong that's been done to him, um, David then talks about those who are, who are trying to destroy him, kill him, uh, make his children fatherless, that kind of thing. So it says, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. So, you know, fear, pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in their tents for they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Then there's probably the heaviest verse here. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a huge deal. That, to be blotted out of the book of the living here, this not be written with the righteous seems to be like eternal consequences. Um so a few things I'll say about this passage, then I want to talk about like, just walk us through kind of a primer ways, at least that I think about these things and, and some others respond to them. Um, and you guys can think about it for yourself, learning to think biblically about everything. That's the goal here with the Bible thinker, this ministry. So in these verses, we have this, um, let their table become a snare for them. This is the things that they're enjoying, that they're delighting in, which, which are things, which I think you can say are implied. These things are achieved by sin. And it's their prosperity. Let that become a trap for them. Uh, God often in in Proverbs, in Psalms, and in Scripture will trap people where the, the sin that they wanted, that they finally got, and that they thought was pleasure and joy, ends up being a curse to them. This is actually consistent with that. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see, and make their loins shake continually, pour out your indignation upon them. So this is God speaking of God, let your wrath you know, come upon them. This is actually quoted in the New Testament Um so you can't just take the section of scripture and remove it and be like, well, that's no good for us. We just, we just think that one's wrong. This is what some progressive Christians will do. And they'll just say, yeah, these are just plain wrong. Uh, th these, these statements in the Psalms, um, they persecute the ones you've struck. Okay. So th this is actually, um, something that we get, like say in the book of a Amos, I believe it is, or, or, or Obadiah, 
I think it's Obadiah now. I'm trying to remember right now. Um, at any rate, this is where, you know, God strikes a, a, a people, say Israel or David for sin, and then others come and kick them while they're down and persecute them, even though they're being chastened by God, but forgiven because they're repenting. And then they try to take advantage of this. And so they're, they're like jackals or vultures in that context. So um, let's now look at some specifics. All right. Some people will say that such desires and prayers are always unchristian. They're bad for Christians. You, you simply cannot have these types of prayers, these types of desires, even that some, God would blot someone out of the book of the of the book of life. Um, I think that this doesn't hold true to the New Testament. So, like, if we see things like this in the New Testament or in Jesus's mouth, then we'll have to say that there's at least some room for it in some way. Now, I'm not saying open the floodgates. Pray hateful things all the time, you all all you want. But rather, what I'm saying is, we, we should at least say, "Hey, we can't have a wholesale do it whenever you want or throw it completely out." If we see it actually in the New Testament as well, so Galatians one nine is an example of this. As we've said before, so now I say again: If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. And this word "accursed" anathema in the Greek, it really in the in this context, he means accursed from God. He blotted out of the book of life. Like this is, this is a parallel to that old Testament statement. They're blotted out of the book of life. Let them be accursed from God. And this is in the new Testament, specifically those who preach a false gospel, they deserve and should be blotted out of the book of life. Um, wow. That that's a big deal, but there's, there's a lot more. Let me share with you some others that I think make it so that you can't rule these things out entirely. Galatians five eleven. Um, this is a, a an adult type verse here. <laughs> I mean, it's it's something that adults can understand and go, oh, I get that. And like a 12-year-old would snicker at and, and miss the point. He says, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? The if, if Then the offense of the cross had ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Uh, that, that idea, cut themselves off or emasculate themselves... These, these are a mature moment here, right? These are um, Judaizers who were going to the Galatians saying, you have, to be, you have to be circumcised and become a Jew and obey the law in order to be saved. And Paul's rejecting this as a false gospel. And he, and he actually says something that kind of sounds like the Psalms here. He goes, I wish that they would, instead of circumcising you, I wish they would cut themselves off figuratively and using the term literally in a sense. I mean, I don't know if he's... I don't think he means it. I think he's using a literal term here in a figurative sense to show I would rather them just harm themselves instead of harming you. Um, and that that idea of being cut off is has a lot of other symbolic meaning too in, with, with Israel. Anyway, that being said, this is kind of a similar thing. Very imprecatory-ish. Is that a word? Probably not. All right, 2 Timothy 4.14. This is where Paul says, um, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Okay, this is not a compliment. This is asking God to to. It's kind of like the Psalms. Hey, God, do bad to them as they as they deserve. He's he's asking for this with Alexander. Now, if we read other places in Paul, we realize that Alexander was probably this guy um, that was had embraced the gospel, or at least apparently did, and then later apostatized, and then did much harm. He's a coppersmith, so he's probably making money with idols and stuff, possibly. At any rate, he 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 apostatized and they did much harm which could be persecution that he was bringing on paul um if it's the same guy um or, you know or trying to draw other christians away 
Or it could just be that he was a different Alexander and he was the, uh, one of the people who's making idols who rages against Paul. Here's the gospel. His heart's hardened. You know, Paul wants him saved, but you know what? Because in this moment of him preaching the gospel, there's this attack against the gospel itself. Yes, Lord, repay him according to his works. This sounds very much like that too, but there's an even bigger, I think, usage in Revelation. So in Revelation chapter six, verse nine, where we, we read about the opening of the scrolls and, and the seals and the bold judgments and all this. So here it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who'd been slain for the, for the word of God and for the testimony, which they held, they cried with a loud voice saying, and here's what those who'd been persecuted are saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Make no mistake about it. The judgment that they're talking about here in Revelation is like God's actual wrath poured out in violence upon the earth. And they're praying for it related to their enemies. What, what am I saying? Then you can't just pretend like imprecatory Psalms or ideas are only in the Old Testament before Christ and sort of draw a clean line away from Christians and, and, and these calls for judgment. And I think this is good. I think this sobers us up as Christians. God will judge and it is good and you should recognize this. And if you don't recognize that God's judgment is good, there's something wrong in your, in your thinking about judgment in general. You either think sin is not as bad as it is, or God is not as holy as he is, or that justice is not as good as it is. There's, there's something wrong in your thinking here. Um, whatever it is, it's not biblical and it's not true. So there is like a sense of, of the goodness of God's judgment and his justice that he's going to bring one day. So then you could, you could even go to Jesus's woes, like where Jesus is like, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Now, sometimes we think of these as Jesus's mourning, like he mourns over Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. And that's true, but it's, it's both sides. It's not either or, it's both. And he weeps over Jerusalem and he threatens them with horrible judgment that he will bring. It's not either or, it's both. He weeps and he threatens. There's a desire for them to be saved. There's a desire for them to repent. And there's a, there's a reality of God's, the goodness of God's judgment upon those who won't. And I think the Bible holds both of these together. It's not just either or. So, um, um, so some will say that these prayers are bad for Christians to do. I think that you can't just make that claim when you look at the broad scope of the new Testament and you see that the types of like judgment that God is bringing and, and that it's good. Revelation six is to me a, a, a big deal there. Others say it's just them venting. It's just the psalmist are venting. And so we should take it with at least a grain of salt. Like maybe, maybe don't say that they're wrong. Okay, that I think is, is, there's a problem with your view of inspiration at that point, but the, um, and, and your ability to interpret a passage, but um, forgive me, I'm just being honest, but the the idea that there, maybe there's a, an element of this where it's just them venting. Okay, I'm actually open to that because there's definitely Psalms where the psalmist, if you read the whole Psalm, he says something silly in the beginning of the Psalm, like Psalm 73, and then towards the end of the Psalm, he corrects himself. So there was a clear instance of venting, pouring your heart out before God and getting out this wrong idea, but not letting it sit there and correcting it. Um, however, we don't generally see the type of thing where it's a correction going on in these imprecatory Psalms, at least not, not as a rule where it's across all of them. They're always like later going, ah, oh, I shouldn't have this bad attitude. So I think that you, yeah, you, 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 
it, it's you'd be hard pressed to push that on all these all these psalms. Um, so let me give you some elements, some principles, and then we'll talk about how to apply this with with Jesus's command to pray for our enemies. Um, one in the psalms, it is not about revenge. Um, they appeal to God as judge, and implicit in this, if you read the psalms carefully, you, you realize. Implicit in this is the fact that the psalmist will not try to get vengeance on their own. They're not even going to attempt to get vengeance on their own because God is the one who will avenge. So God is the judge and they're going to wait on God to do the judging. This is huge. This is you when you feel wounded and you want to strike back and you want to get in the flesh and you want to do evil things. If you instead pray, Lord, I pray you would be the judge and you would do justice and you would bring rightness into the situation. You would deal with them. And this is a uh, a prayer of faith. It really is. Um, so it's not them getting revenge. Uh, number two, I think you can add an implicit, if they won't repent onto all the imprecatory Psalms. Why do I say this? Um, well, scripture is chock full, old and new Testament are chock full of this idea of if you repent, God forgives. It's throughout the scripture. It's very strongly in both the old and new Testament. I'll give you an old Testament passage right here. Isaiah 55, one of my favorite old Testament passages, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the the, the appeal. Come and repent. So let's suppose that the one who this imprecatory psalm is being prayed over repented. Well, that would change everything. Oh, well, in light of the grace of God, we, we, we see them being forgiven. So there's an element of that of where I could say, yeah, Lord, I pray that you would stop and smash this person in their sin, but I pray also they would repent and they can then avoid your, your future coming judgment. Uh, there's an element of that where I think that can be prayed. And there's times where that feels like the right thing to pray, right? When ISIS is running around and they're causing so much, um, um, horrible massacres and stuff like that. Like that's an appropriate prayer. Lord, I don't just want you to prosper them in their, in their agendas here. <laughs> I pray you would smash them and bring them to repentance, Lord. Um, that, that I think is an appropriate prayer at that point. It's difficult to find examples of this in your normal life because most of us aren't experiencing that kind of stuff. You know, where it's more like, um, my boss is always, he always overlooks me. He doesn't say thank you enough. And it's like, well, I'm not going like, to pray an imprecatory psalm on it. Um, even Psalm 69 is actually a contrast to show you that there's this implied, if they will repent. In Psalm 69, the one we were reading today, there's this contrast between David, who was struck for sin, but repented, and now he's experiencing God's mercy, to the person uh, who's who's going to be blotted out or is requested to be blotted out, they're unrepentant. They don't yield to God. So we have sinners on both ends of the psalm. One's repentant, experiencing God's mercy. One's out of God's mercy. So this psalm stands as a reminder that if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't go to Jesus like with real faith and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. I deserve your wrath and judgment. Then you're going to get the wrath and judgment. So this is a reminder of that very real judgment of God that's coming upon the world and upon each individual. Yeah, they need Jesus. Um, another thing I'll say, third element to think of with these imprecatory Psalms is you're not David. Um, let me give you an example from this. Okay. Here's one that I use in the thumbnail, breaking teeth, but um, Psalm chapter 41, look at verse. Um, oh, I'm sorry. The break, I'll get the breaking teeth one in a second. That's Psalm 58, but um 
Here we go. In Psalm 41.10, it says, But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. This is probably the only one that I'm aware of anyways, where David or one of the Psalms is saying, I'll get them back. Raise me up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them. I mean, that just sounds like totally something. Whoa, I don't think I can pray that, Mike. And you're right. You probably can't, right? But imagine this. Imagine if you were a police officer and there you are going out to a crime scene and you get struck and hit and you're on the ground and there's the, 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 the criminals are out running amok and you're lying on the ground and you start praying, God, raise me up so I can get them. All of a sudden, it takes a whole different connotation. It's not about personal revenge because you represent the law and you do need to get up and get them. David is the king of Israel here. He's the one who's supposed to rise up and bring justice down in the world, in, in at least Israel, right? He's also a picture of Jesus who God raises up and now we're waiting until Jesus comes back for those who don't repent to get them like that. And that's a good thing. So, um, yeah, you're not David. So that's why you wouldn't pray Psalm 4110 because you know, if you're, you're that cop, <laughs> yeah, you could pray it. That's good in that scenario because it's assigned to a rightful authority to bring out the sword, so to speak. Um, so you're not David. You can't always personalize every scripture that you see. That's not a good for you to try to do that. And finally, I'll say Psalms tell a story. Um, I say finally, but I'm not there yet, actually. Uh, Psalms tell a story. And in the book of Psalms, you can't just read a verse and pull it out. You, you do need to read the entire flow of the whole chapter in order to find it. This is why you have to take them individually. I, you can't take something I've said and apply it to every single imprecatory Psalm. You need to look at each one in context thoughtfully. And let me give you an example of this. Here's a Psalm that's, I don't know if it's really even very imprecatory. I mean, it sort of is, but people think it is a lot more than it is. And here's the thing that you always get quoted, right? You, you get this, this, um, uh, this statement, break their teeth in their mouth, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Oh God. And, and I'm okay. So in, in a, in a culture where we we're, we're very aware of fights and, and UFC and boxing and all this stuff. So break their teeth in their mouth just sounds like literally God, I want you to smash their face so hard that their teeth fall out. But this is not literal, right? Look at the rest of the verse. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. In the Psalms, when they when they turn people into animals, so to speak, they, they say, hey, I'm going to talk about a person like they're an animal or a creature. It's to illustrate specific realities about them. So in this case, the young lion is, uh, they have teeth. These are their weapons. Break their teeth in their mouth means ruin their ability to kill people. So if a lion had no teeth, it just gum people. <laughs> so that's the idea. And to, to make this clear, let's look at the next verse where it says, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces, right? When he bends his bow. So he bends his bow to like strike somebody and, it, and his arrows just fall in half, right? Where his teeth are like the arrows as well. The idea is that their ability to harm people is removed. God ruin their ability to hurt people. May their guns malfunction. Well, like that's, that's the idea. So really, this is, this is not, um, uh, what people often think of it as, it's just, just, I just want to see violence upon them, just violence, violence. And I'm not saying you can answer every Psalm that way, but here's one example of one where you have to take them individually, consider them thoughtfully, do a whole Bible study on the entire chapter and not just read a verse. So here's some general rules. Um, prayer for justice is appropriate and it's just, and it's okay to be like, God, you will one day judge them. And I'm happy about that. But we're also called to demonstrate an overabundance of grace as a way of showing people the gospel. Now, the, the gospel was not fully revealed in the Old Testament. 
It is fully revealed now. And you are an ambassador of that gospel. And while David stood and the Israelites stood as a national kingdom that God had created and was doing something special with, now Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. And we read, our, our, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And this changes a lot of how we deal with sort of those situations. Because David wouldn't say, "I'm raise me up so I can repay them if he wasn't the king of Israel in Old Testament Israel. Right? Paul's not going to say that. Lord, raise me up so I can repay them because he's in a, he's in a different scenario. So for us, I think that we pray for them and we bless them and we seek for benefits and blessings upon those who are even hurting us, who deserve judgment, not because that is what is just, but because that is what shows God's overabundant grace. I will demonstrate undeserved kindness and mercy towards others as a way of showing you what the gospel means. This is why you can pray, rightfully pray for God to judge them. That's that's not wrong in and of itself. But you can also, as an ambassador for the gospel, say, even though I could rightfully pray for that, I'm going to pray for their repentance. I'm going to pray for them to receive mercy. So th this is where you get um, Romans 12. Here's another passage in the New Testament that holds these things in, in I don't want to say intention. A lot of weirdos use that word too much. <laughs> No, there's a long story, but um, they hold, hold these tr these different truths together, right, in balance, in proper balance, so that we can understand them. Here's a verse, that, a passage that does this. Romans 17, repay no one evil for evil, so you don't get vengeance. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. But it doesn't end there, right? This is where the pacifist would, pacifist would be like, don't avenge yourself. That's the end of the story. But here it's rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. And here's a promise. I will repay, says the Lord. So God is saying to us, I am going to bring payment. Don't get in the way. You hold back and just show mercy, mercy, mercy. But Lord, what if I keep showing mercy and they never repent? What if I keep showing kindness and they, they die in their sin and they just get worse? Well, read the next verse. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you heap you will heap coals of fire on his head. I tend to think this does mean it'll increase their judgment. If the enemy doesn't repent, then it will only add to their sin total because they've received even more kindness and even more light and even more grace that they've rejected. So one way or another, God's going to be glorified in bringing justice and judgment on the wicked. Or what our hope is and what God's gospel shows us is that he'd, he'd like to prefer to bring them into the grace of Christ. And you can be an ambassador to bring that build that bridge by not um, jumping to the imprecatory <laughs> attitude um, too quickly or too much or too wrongly. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the other danger of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm imprecatorying now. There's another not word for you. So, um, so yeah, uh, pray for, pray for them. Um, pray for them to repent. You can still pray for God to stop them. You can pray that God will judge, God please judge them if they don't repent. But that's me trusting him to do the judgment. And I think that's a good thing. And you can say also, God, this is me refusing to be overcome by evil, choosing to wait and to trust on your good judgment. I will not take a sinful action in this situation. I will call on you and I will wait. I hope that that brings some answers to you guys um on that on that question we got a, a ton of questions we're gonna be dealing with today so let's just plow into them i spent a little longer on the first one as usual but here's the second brian Marcil says 
is Genesis 1, 1 through 6, a foreshadowing of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 1, 1, Luke 1, 1, Mark 1, 1, Matthew 4, 17, 1 John 1, 1, all speak of beginning, then water, light, darkness. I think uh, we'll spend a little time on this, but Brian, I'd have to spend more time on this. And here's the thing. Um, uh, let me, I guess what I can do is offer a couple helpful thoughts. Um, Genesis has lots of elements. Um, these different passages you're quoting have lots of elements. Um, we just want to be thoughtful and careful as we're trying to assign connections between scriptures to just make sure it looks really established. I'm not saying you're not being, I'm just saying here's some principles I have as I try to work through these things. So Genesis 1, 1 through 6 does have a beginning. In the beginning, that's a big theme there. In fact, that's the name of the book in Hebrew, right? Beginning. Um, then you've got um, water, light, darkness, but you also have earth. Like water doesn't make sense apart from earth because they're in Genesis 1, they're, they're connected. There's the, there's the water and there's the earth, there's the land. So that's, that's important too. Light and darkness are corresponding to each other. It'd be weird to take water out. So if you're if you don't see earth also in these other passages, I don't know if I would I would try to connect that to Genesis. Does that make, I hope that makes sense? But water and light, uh, light and dark rather are definite themes there. Probably the easiest one is John one to see this and John first John one, which you mentioned as well. In the beginning was the word. Okay, so here we have it literally the same beginning as uh, of of the text as Genesis one one. But it's not saying in the beginning, here's what happened, God created. It's saying, what was the state of things already? The word just was, right? And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this is about the eternal existence of the word as both God and being with God, which to me is a beautiful way to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is, Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there's only one God. Um, so he's with and is God. Anyway, I think it's beautiful. All things were made through him. Okay, so now we're talking about creation. In the beginning, there's creation. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Then there's light and dark, like you said. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So there definitely is, seems a connection with Genesis 1 there. Let's just quickly look at a couple other passages, though. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been filled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things and from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. Now, I don't see anything about beginning uh, light and dark. We, we see beginning here, but in Luke in particular, the phrase from the beginning I think refers not to creation, but it refers to the, the, the baptism of John, John baptizing Jesus, that that refers to the beginning. That's the beginning. Luke, the same guy wrote the book of Acts, when they talk about who can be a, an apostle to replace Judas, they're like someone who's been with us from the beginning, from the baptism of John. So I think that that's a different thing, Luke chapter one. Um, and then you get to Mark one. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so here we do have at the beginning, but is it the beginning in, in the sense of Genesis 1-1? I think that it's rather the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, which starts with the forerunner, John, who came baptizing. He's the messenger who goes before Christ. 
So beginnings there here, you know, in these different places, but they're referring to different things. One's the baptism of John or rather John baptizing Jesus. Um, that's Luke. Then in Mark, we have the beginning referring to um, John's ministry leading, which is around the same time, right? His, his ministry leads up to him pointing to Jesus, but it starts kind of at sort of all of John's ministry. And um, and then you get to uh, Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I think what you've done here is you found the word begin in each of the gospels and you're trying to connect them all to Genesis. In my opinion, the only one that clearly connects is John one. And then we didn't go to first John, but first John one, he does it again. Um, I think, let me see. Um, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which you've looked upon our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we've seen and bear witness. I guess I'd have to spend more time on this passage. I don't. I don't know off the cuff if I would consider this beginning to be um, creation or the beginning of 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 the message that they received. They're saying that he's saying that there are, the message is the original one we got. We haven't changed it. Hasn't been adulterated. Mm, interesting things to think about. All right. So there you go. I, I just want to be sober and thoughtful, and I, I don't want to force connections. But when they're there, I want to see them. Genesis and John one hundred percent big connections going on there. Let's go to the next question. Manda says, growing up, I had uh, people expect me to show gratitude as a way to ignore abuse. Now I want to be thankful for blessings in my life, but I associate gratitude with abuse. How do I separate that? Oh, Manda, um, I would want to ask you a bunch of questions to try to come to like work, work you to a place where you're having an understanding of something here. But the thing that I would want you to understand is what is it about gratitude that is a lie that you're believing? There's something about gratitude that you're believing that's not true. And um, can I say that's, if, let's, let's, I'm going to take for granted your story is 100% true, right? Like, because I don't, I don't know you or any of your story, but let's just say it's 100% accurate. Somebody was abusing you and they were like, be grateful, be grateful as a way of like trying to spiritualize their abuse or cover it up or something like that. Um, this means that they abused the concept of gratitude with you. And it sounds to me like that abuse is still with you. Let me, let me give you um, an example of this from cult groups. So Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, like if you were Jehovah's Witness for years, often when people come out of these cult groups, from what I've experienced from talking to them, is they don't trust anyone. They can't, they, they sometimes have a really hard time submitting to any church leadership because they had such horrible, abusive, and misleading leadership in the Watchtower organization, or especially the governing body, these, these guys in New York um, that, are, that are like running everything, that they, they had such abuse from these leaders that they feel like they can't, they can't ever have anybody in charge of them anymore. So the thing is that this abuse is not over. The leaders have not only hurt them in their leadership, they're continuing to abuse them by robbing from them the ability to have good leaders and trust people and submit to them. Here's another example, right? I grew up and saw very bad marriage stuff growing up. I'll, one day, maybe I'll tell some stories um, after my, my loved ones have passed away. I'm not going to embarrass them with these stories for now. But, um, but let me just say this. Uh, I believed that marriage 
was probably not in the cards for me when I was like a teenager because I thought I what I saw growing up was so horrible. I don't think I want to risk getting that. I was still suffering the pain, or I should say the the lies that I had watched. I watched a bad marriage and thought that's what marriage is. It was in scripture that I learned, but there's a good marriage and there's a godly marriage and there's a, a man who loves his wife like Christ loves the church and he self-sacrificially treats her with incredible love. There's a, a woman who respects and yields to her husband in a godly manner and they both exhibit the love of Christ and their marriage isn't just about them. It's about glorifying the Lord. I learned this in scripture and it restored my view of these things. So in, in the same sense, like, and I'm married now, I'm very happily married for, for 13 years, I think. <laughs> um, maybe, I don't know. I don't, I don't consider it a test of marriage if you can remember the number. At any rate, um, the, uh, the thing I want you to know is that gratitude Get, get your biblical view of gratitude, like look at scripture and look at what gratitude is and what you can be thankful for and what you can be thankful about. For instance, you're not thankful for the pain. You're thankful for what God did good through the pain. There's a big difference there. Learn what gratitude is in scripture. Read Philippians where it talks about being, being thankful in all things um, and renew your mind so that you can have a biblical view of gratitude and you won't have the distorted view of gratitude that someone else tried to teach you as part of abuse. That would be my counsel. Do a Bible study on gratitude. Question number four, and we're full up on questions. I got all 20 for today, you guys. Um, this comes from Chocolate Cow, who says, people quote prophecy as evidence of Jesus's deity. Could he have deliberately fulfilled some such as bribing men to divide his clothes or purposefully riding a donkey into Jerusalem? Um, yeah, he could have purposely fulfilled some. Um, bribing men to... Uh, gamble for his clothes is pretty unlikely. Um, the It's pretty unlikely. Um, but we also have historical reasons to think that that probably did happen. So, I, I mean, obviously, I trust the scriptures. But for those who are, who are wanting to see more support for the trustworthiness of scriptures, it is actually true that at the time, historically, the soldiers did take the belongings of those who were being crucified. It was later on, there was a ruling by one of the, one of the Caesars, Hey, you guys can't do that anymore. But that was because it was a practice that was going on where they would take the belongings of the person. And, um, um, so that's, that, that was just a normal practice for, for crucifixion at the time. Historically, there's no reason to doubt that happened. Um, what's crazy is that it was written about a thousand years before it happened when crucifixion hadn't been invented yet in Psalm 22. That's what's crazy. Jesus riding it on a donkey to Jerusalem. That, that was definitely him deliberately fulfilling prophecy. Does that, does, does that mean that the donkey riding is not fulfilled prophecy? No, but it does mean this. If, if all that Jesus did was easily fulfilled prophecies, where it's like, clap three times. And Jesus is like, what else do I got to do? Clap three times. All right, ride a donkey. I rode a donkey. What else do I do? Whistle this song. I'll whistle this song. If that was all Jesus did, if we were like, look at all this evidence for Jesus's, you know, authenticity. And it was just a bunch of easy to do yourself prophecies, then yes, that would be a, a strike against Christianity. Um, so when Jesus rides the donkey in, I don't look at that and go, this is, this is proof that Jesus was this Messiah. I think I actually look at the specific prophecy of the donkey as this is proof that Jesus knew he was the Messiah, claimed to be the Messiah, and was deliberately seeing himself as the, as the, as the messianic figure riding in. So in addition to the prophecies that Jesus couldn't have just done on purpose, under normal human powers. 
we have the fact that he also was obviously cognizant that he was the Messiah as he was coming into Jerusalem at that time. Uh, see what I mean? We're just, we're just trying to let the evidence say what it says. The donkey shows that Jesus knows he's Messiah, is claiming to be Messiah. Other things like where Jesus was born, when Jesus was born, um, how Jesus was killed. Like he, 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 he can't, you can't reasonably say, well, that was all done deliberately, right? Um, th that's not likely. Um, him being pierced, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the, the resurrection of Christ, the, the eyewitness testimony to his, his resurrection, like those are some things. There's a lot of stuff that Jesus did as well that like is not only fulfilled prophecy, but it's also miraculous. So like Jesus actually doing exorcisms and healing people, um, at least the people at the time, not just the writers of the gospel coming years later, the people at the time believed Jesus was an exorcist and healer. Like he was really doing these things. Like you can't do that under human powers. I have one, I know one atheist who said that this was like magician's tricks. Jesus was just doing like magician's tricks. Um, but that's only on a very like surfacey level. Does this sound good? When you actually read the passages and look at the descriptions of the events, they don't fit that description at all. Jesus would only be healing strangers. He wouldn't be healing well-known people in towns who had friends with them and stuff like this. Uh, those don't fit. So then you have to move to the conspiracy theory. I'm just rambling now, but you have to move to the conspiracy theory. Oh, well, the, the gospel writers fabricated all that stuff, except then you have to start to try to build a case for why you will selectively reject all the miraculous stuff in the New Testament when there's so much historical support for everything else in the New Testament, um, along with corroborating accounts. And anyway, there's, there's a, a big, long discussion that can happen there. Anyway, I hope that helps. Uh, number five, Simon Ward says, what is the significance of God promising physical blessings to nations, thinking particularly of the promise to Ishmael, when in light of eternity, physical blessings are nearly insignificant? Um, I, in a sense, yes, in light of eternity, a lot of stuff is insignificant. Um, but that doesn't mean that it has no significance. And so imagine if God had promised you, just, just to kind of give you an illustration, imagine if God had promised you, Simon, um, I'm going to bless you with an incredible business skills and, and you're going to, you're going to build products that are going to like bring people health and well-being and deal with issues that are going on in the world. You're also going to become very rich and wealthy, but you're not just going to use it for yourself. You're going to sponsor missionaries and you're going to support ministries and it's going to be awesome. And you might say like, well, why do I care about this in light of eternity? And you're like, well, there's lots of reasons to care about it. For one thing, it, it is even temporary. It is temporary blessings. And we like that. It also has fruit for eternity because the blessings impact people's lives long-term. And it's also just amazing to think that God is doing something on your behalf at all, even if it's temporary. It's just an amazing, amazing thing. So like with, with God's promise to Ishmael, some of those elements are there. Um, and one of them is is just that God keeps his promises, that God is going to to do what he said for Abraham so we can trust him. And here we are standing in the New Testament. We're, we're standing where there's so much fulfilled, but there's much that's not fulfilled yet. Jesus is coming back. Um the fact that God does what he says for Ishmael is evidence that you can trust and wait on him to do what he says for the eternity that you say is so valuable. So these are all benefits that I think we should be aware of. Magpie OAO says, is the Greek Septuagint 
considered a flawed copy. The genealogy of Shem adds hundreds of years, which is quite significant. Is the MT inerrant or am I misunderstanding inerrancy? Thanks. Okay. Just framing this for people, um, anybody who doesn't know, when we say Septuagint, Greek Septuagint, that's just a way of saying there's this like these Greek copies of the Old Testament that were translated into Greek um, over over a period of time. Um, and we have them. They're very, very old copies of the Old Testament. And they're in Greek, not Hebrew or Aramaic or any other of the languages we see in the Old Testament. Then we have what's called the MT or the Masoretic Text. And the Masoretic Text has been kind of the standard text you actually get your Old Testament from. And it's it's in Hebrew. Now, the Masoretic Text, the oldest copies we had uh, of that up until recently were like 900 AD. Like, that's not that old, really, for something that was written before the New Testament. Um, but when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, sorry, in, the, in like the 1940s, 1948, I think it was, they discovered these ancient scrolls that push back the Masoretic Text dating like a thousand years. And it shows a, a well-preserved text and that it's a very trustworthy and reliable. So the question you have about these is, hey, you know, there's places where the Greek... Septuagint is different than the Masoretic text. Um, should we consider the Greek flawed? And you give an example, the genealogy of Shem adds hundreds of years, which is quite significant. I think that there isn't a pat answer for this. Mac, I'm going to speak as someone who's, I'm not a textual critic. I care about these things a lot. I try to look into them myself as well. So here's my opinion on this, um, uh, that there isn't a pat answer that you with with textual criticism what you do is you look at the masoretic text you look at the the septuagint you look at both of them and you think about it in each case in each verse in each comparison and the septuagint isn't just one thing it's not like one group sat down and translated the entire old testament at one time and they had the same reliability all through that translation that it's not the way it is it was translated it there's a debate about it right how spread out it was how much of the septuagint was written in this time versus translated at a later time um versus some unlikely belief that it was done by 70 scholars all at one time um, with some kind of miraculous help. Like that's probably not historically what happened from what I understand. So you just look at each one. You look at each one. Um, I think in general, if you had to have it just a generalization, I think the Masoretic text is generally looked at as more, more reliable than the Septuagint. I know individually in passages where I look up, well, the Septuagint says this, it, I'm, when I have looked up specific things where it's a debate, whether it's an apologetics or theology, I usually end up going, yeah, I'm not going with the Septuagint here. <laughs> when I look up a specific thing and I read, you know, textual criticism stuff on that particular passage, like say Isaiah 53, I'm not going with the Septuagint on Isaiah 53. Now, here's what's interesting. Isaiah 53 has in the Septuagint has things that, that tone down the, what we would call the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That, which is an important doctrine, it's an understanding of the cross, part of the understanding of the cross, along with other things like the, the moral elements of the cross and uh, other atonement things that go on there. Um, so what's interesting is the New Testament authors, whenever they quote the Septuagint, or, or sorry, the, the Isaiah 53, they do not quote the Septuagint. They either provide their own translation or they have a different translation than what we see in the Septuagint. So... That's just an interesting thing, at least for Isaiah 53, that you can consider. Um, is the Masoretic text inerrant, you ask? Um, I would say that we don't look typically at any copy as being inerrant. The belief in inerrancy is belief that the originals are inerrant. And, the, and, and whatever copy you're looking at, Masoretic, 
right? And even in the Masoretic, there's some different versions of the Masoretic where there's like slight differences. And the job of scholars is to look at these and go, what does the original say? Because guess what? We believe the original is inerrant. We don't believe that that means God makes so that nobody who copies can ever make a mistake. We believe the original is inerrant. So as much as the as as any text, you know, represents the original, there's inerrancy. Now this might make you feel worried, right? It, for those maybe who are listening who are going, oh, I don't really know much about this. Now I'm wondering if I can trust the Bible at all. Oh, you're totally overreacting. Like let me just tell you, I've been there, okay? But you're totally overreacting. Uh, you can totally relax. We have great confidence about the original writing of of what we have in the scripture. That's the short version of the story. If you want the long version, I point you to my evidence for the Bible series. I'll put, in fact, I'll put a playlist below that has like a few videos in it that are all about this issue where I get into a bunch of detail. That's for follow-up for anybody. I will link that below afterwards. Um, all right, so number seven, Lady of the Needles has a question. What are your thoughts about what is happening at Asbury? So someone told me about this, uh, texted me about this and they were like, have you heard about this? And this was like, five or six days ago, maybe. And I was like, no, Asbury Seminary, it was five days ago. I hadn't heard anything about it. And they go, well, it's blowing up on social media. And I was like, well, I haven't really been paying attention to social media much at all, which is, I'm not trying to act like I'm righteous for that. I just, I just haven't been. Um, and so I looked into it a little bit and, and in the days since then, I've seen it everywhere. So apparently at Asbury Seminary, which is in Kentucky, I think it is, I think um, there there's there's claims that there's a big revival going on and they've had now for maybe 11 days or maybe 11 or 12 days. There's just been like a constant chapel service and this chapel service has had large numbers of people at it just worshiping and praising and I don't really know all that's going on there, but it's got quite a stir. Okay. Sometimes in the morning, there's only a few people there and other times in the evenings or other times there's just masses like where they can't even fit in the building. People are spending busloads of people over to the seminary uh, to be part of the revival. And there's and there's people that are coming in from, like, say, um, Bethel or like some guys like re just put it out there. Totally. Um, horrible individuals. Um, I say this with justification. Todd Bentley, um, who is it, it is evil. Um, that man has been coming and he does things in the name of Christ and he's he's total fake bad guy just reality i've never done a video on him i don't really care to but at any rate he's going out there so people are like oh they're worried about where this will go is it authentic is it not i honestly i have no idea like how much do i know other than what i've picked up here and there on social media or i see a video of one guy on a microphone who's like just an attendee and they and he asked to speak and they gave him the mic for a minute and he says a bunch of stuff and i'm like is that am i supposed to take that as representing this whole thing it's, you know, others saying like, Hey, God's working. God's doing great things. I don't know. I don't know. I would only caution you guys resist the need to come to a quick judgment on things, you know, very little about, including like this thing right here. I'm, I hope it's genuine. I hope it's really a work of God's spirit. Even if it is genuine, that doesn't mean it doesn't come with a mess or with other people coming in and, you know, so we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. But even then, I don't know. I, there's other historic revivals people talk about. Oh, this, there's this supposed Toronto blessing. I've never looked into it. I've only heard people mention it. I don't know. I don't have a judgment on it because I don't know. Um, and I haven't spent the time looking into it. So I'm just, yeah, I'm saying I, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. I don't feel like I have to have a judgment call on it. You don't have to have a judgment call on it. It doesn't really affect you, does it? If it's of God, then awesome. Praise the Lord. If, it, if it's not, then 
may God give us wisdom if there's any involvement we should have or why we should bother feeling like we have to weigh in on it. This is not to say others don't have a right to weigh in on it. Maybe that's what the Lord has them doing. It's just not something on my radar. I'm just, <laughs> cool. Is that a revival? Awesome. That's great. If that's genuine. Um, and even if it is genuine, it doesn't mean it's all 100% good. So I'm okay with just not judging. All right, let's uh, look at the next one. Jay Towels, is the current way we do church services prescribed in the Bible? Where did this current style of worship come from? That's a great question. Uh, there isn't really a way of doing church services clearly laid out in scripture. There's only elements, elements in a church service. So you could look at like Acts, a lot of people look at Acts 2.42 as kind of showing some of these elements. So this is after the first like influx of all these people getting saved. What were the what were they doing? What were the first church services like? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So we could call that like in the teaching of, of the New Testament, because that's where we find the apostles' doctrine. And fellowship. So they're gathering together, not just in a building, but actually actually connecting with each other, like as part of the family of God. In the breaking of bread, which is probably talking about communion. Well, here's the debate. Is it about communion or is it about having meals together? And I think the two were joined at this time in the church. I think they were doing communion meals. Um, just like when Jesus did communion the first time, there was a whole meal and there was an aspect of it that was communion. So they were doing communion and in prayers. And some translations say the prayers. Let me give you ESV. I'll bet it says the prayers. Yeah, the prayers. Because they think that this this may have been some sort of corporate group specific kinds of praying that was going on. Um. So there we go. We, we'd have we'd have scripture, teaching of scripture. We'd have fellowship. We'd have communion, at, at minimum, possibly a meal and communion, and we have prayer. So like, what does that give you as far as the church service? Okay, I don't I don't have worship in there, do I? Yeah, well that would I mean that would be included in prayers, I think, because prayer isn't is partly an aspect of if you read the scriptures, uh, pr prayer is often an avenue for worship. And the Psalms themselves, even though they were set to music, are actually prayers. So I think that includes worship. But does this mean like you're supposed to have, you know, five songs and then you have announcements and then you have like a 40 minute sermon, maybe 30, maybe an hour if you're, you know, if, if you're, if you're depending on whatever your church is set up does, then you have like, you know, time afterwards where you just have people hopefully mingling and fellowshipping and is that, is that an okay expression? Well, I mean, yeah, like, here's my thought. If the Bible doesn't give us exactly this order, but just gives us elements, then maybe we just need to include the elements and not worry too much about the order. That would be my thought. Um, so is the current way we do church services prescribed in the Bible? Um, there's elements I think we want to see in our church services and a lot of flexibility I want to give to different churches on how they do those things because the Bible doesn't make it ironclad because here's, here's the temptation I have personally. I'm very used to a certain thing. And I go somewhere and they do it different and I don't like it. That's, that's human. And the older you get, the more you're like this. <laughs> that's a human thing. Um, recognize my personal discomfort with what's new is not the same as saying that someone's doing something wrong. So allow churches, you know, wide range of abilities to do these different things um, in their, in their services. That would be my my take on it for what it's worth. Arizona Muralist says, why didn't Aaron 
get punished for making the golden calf in Exodus 32. Love your ministry and miss the kitty cam. I know. I, well, I do. She won't. She just, just the cat just doesn't want to come around. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> She's not a dog. Right? A dog. I, there'd be like a dog cam every week. I'd be like, come on. And the dog would sit and do what I told it to do. And cat, you know, cats. That's what I like about cats. I like that they're like that. I think, that's, I think it's funny. Anyway, here's a, there's a cat. <laughs> but to your question, to your question, um, why didn't Aaron get punished for making the golden calf in Exodus 32? Um, that's an interesting question. What punishment did Aaron get? Let's just read through this passage a little bit. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what he what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the, ring, the rings of gold that are in, your, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And they had gotten those from the Egyptians, right? And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here's the interesting to me is why does he even know how to do that? I mean, I've never heard anybody talk about it. I'm sure somebody has. I just haven't heard it. And I'm just, I'm like, I wonder what, where he learned that skill. Um, Maybe, maybe he was part of the building stuff that he did for the Egyptians as he was like, whatever, I don't know. So they said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, giving this golden calf credit for the things that God had done. This is not just a rejection of Yahweh. This is an assignment of like, I'm going to sort of turn Yahweh into these idols so that I can, yeah, it's bad stuff. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Um, notice it's they said. I don't think I ever noticed that before either. It's they said, not Aaron said, but they said. Hmm. Anyway, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, which is to Yahweh. They were going to try to worship Yahweh with this idol, the evil stuff. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is not a good thing. This is this is the the, the excess of reckless, sinful um, gluttony, basically. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord and his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up, brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, this is so interesting, with, an, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? So like it would reflect on God's character. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. I'm reading a lot of scripture, yeah. And, and I think you're probably happy with that. But here we go. Uh, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to, you, to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. 
And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is an example of how they deserve judgment, but because of a promise that God gave, they won't receive the judgment. So indeed, they are in need of grace. And only the promise of God through Abraham is the avenue through which they can receive the grace. That promise, which was really all about Jesus. This is the grace of Jesus that allows them to not be destroyed here. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountains with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. The tablets were... Uh, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. Nobody ever does that, both sides. When I see pictures of the tablets, everything's just on one side. I mean, obviously, it'd be hard to do that on a picture. On the front and on the back, they were written. Um, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. So this means that Joshua maybe wasn't aware of all that had transpired between Moses and God. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses is the, the world always turns its wickedness into a party. Have you noticed that? It always turns its sinful wickedness into a party. Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. I think that probably included Aaron. I think that probably included Aaron. Now this was the loss of all of the gold that they'd received from the Egyptians, but it was also a way of making them eat their sin, so to speak. Like this sin is upon you. Look at this wickedness you've done. Um, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do, do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? So he does blame Aaron. Like Aaron, you should have been the one to stop this. Yeah, they asked you to, but you were the leader. You should have stopped it. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Aaron's, Aaron's kind of like Adam here, like, this is woman you gave me. <laughs> he's, he's kind of bringing the blamethrower out. Um, flamethrower, blamethrower, anyway. Uh, you know the people that they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> this is so human. The Bible represents humans so accurately. The type of justifications that immediately come out of your mind when you were caught in your sin. I threw it into the fire and this just calf came out. Like, he takes the part he was involved in, which was forming the calf, and he just does that with it. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, he's not off the hook, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Now Aaron is a son of Levi. Aaron also came around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword in your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate, from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. This was a, um, a killing of those who would reject the worship of God and embrace the worship of false idols. This is again, a spot where people have a hard time with it because they don't see God as holy enough. They don't see sin as wicked enough. And they don't believe that justice is good enough. Um, and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his sons and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Aaron must have been part of that group. 
Um, in my view, part of the punishment of that sin was that they had to enact the punishment of the sin. They had to be the one doing it. To see that, I'm just saying, that was not easy. That was not fun. That was hard. That was difficult. That was painful. And that's probably part of the suffering. But ultimately, Aaron is forgiven for the same reason that the others are forgiven. The ones that are, who repent, who rally to the Lord, is because of the grace of Christ that is promised to Abraham. It is that promise, it is that grace that overlooks, that that, that God overlooks with his wrath, the sin of the people for a time. Um so the next day, Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Anyway, and it goes on. Um, but he, it's, he's appealing to forgiveness. He's appealing to grace. And that is the ultimate reason why why Aaron didn't suffer more for what happened there. So there was a little Bible study on um, Exodus 32. And thanks for asking that question. Number 10, let's do Scam Bader, who says, what are your thoughts on the butterfly effect and the possibility of multiple universes? Um, okay. So I guess there's different versions of this butterfly effect. Let me just say what I, how I understand the butterfly effect. When you say this is the idea that, um, and maybe I, maybe I'm not understanding how you, because you're connecting it to multiple universes, but how like one little thing, like, like here I have earbuds. If I put them here instead of here, you know, maybe that's going to like turn into like, say a tornado hits Tahiti in five years, you know, um, I suppose that's possible. I, 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 I mean, in some remote way that that little thing could have made the difference. Um, but it's so, so highly unlikely that it would, that it's not worth worrying about. That's my general attitude towards a butterfly effect in that, in that understanding of it is that if I'm worried about tiny inconsequential decisions, having world changing effects, this is just going to paralyze me because I, I have no reason to think they will. I'll become overly worried about every little thing. Um, and to no avail because you can't control those things. You can't predict those things. And so it ends up being just a source of paranoia for people. Um, that'd be my fear. Um, multiple universes, maybe the butterfly effect is connected to multiple universes somehow. Um, I don't think there's any evidence for multiple universes. I think people like the idea, so they believe it. <laughs> I think that's just it. I remember hearing people say like, just r random people, okay? They say things like, I hear that every decision we make spawns like a different universe, you know, where we would have made the other decision. And I, this is one of those weird things where people just, they like it, so they believe it. That's it. Um, I don't want to have beliefs based on things I like. I think that's a dangerous way to go about life. That's the, that leads to confirmation bias, whereas I want that to be true, so I'll believe it. All right. How do you know that, you know, you, you're going to be okay when you die, even though you've rejected Jesus? Well, because I want that to be true. You know, like that's a scary way to form your beliefs. And um, oh, easy way to be deceived. Multiple universes. I've never seen any any good evidence for multiple universes. I've generally seen it personally um, presented as a hypothesis to avoid the existence of God. So it's a, it can be done in response to the fine tuning argument for God's existence. So the fine tuning argument has to do with the these are. I'm just going to give you a super quick overview of this, but these are really specific things. The constants and and uh, quantities that are in the universe. So like the amount of dark matter, okay, that's a, a, a quantity in the universe. And then there's the constant in the universe, like say the force of gravity, um, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, things like that. These different things, there's tons of these different elements and you can imagine them, imagine them like, like on a, if you were looking at a big soundboard with all these dials, 
imagine like you have gravity dialed to a very specific amount, the strong nuclear force dialed, the amount of, of matter versus space versus this versus that, um, the, the speed of light, like all these little things are just dialed in. And if they weren't just right, if they weren't dialed just the way they are, there couldn't be any intelligent life in the universe. And so it starts to look highly unlikely that this universe could randomly exist because it's dialed so specifically. Let me give you an example of, of a very simple way to see this. Um, let's say you watch a video and it's one of those like contraptions where someone like rolls a little, a little like tennis ball and it rolls down a ramp and then it hits a little thing and dominoes go by and then something else cool happens and it hits something else and it launches a thing over there and a hundred little things happen and finally in the end, it like turns on a coffee maker or something. Um, if you see something like that happen, you know it was designed because you're looking at it going, this wouldn't have happened on accident. There's too many things that could easily go wrong. If it was random, something would have gone wrong. <laughs> and this is kind of the fine tuning argument is like, it's like saying if this was random, if the universe wasn't designed for life, we wouldn't have life. There's too many specific dials that have to be in just the right spot. And if you moved it a millimeter, no, no life in the universe. So the multiverse theory comes out and says, hey, well, maybe there's an unlimited number of universes and they all have different settings. And we just happen to be in a universe that has the right settings. So if you look at this weird contraption again, use my analogy on the wall and you see this like weird mousetrap kind of contraption and you think, but what if in every room, in every house across the planet, there's one of these contraptions, but it's all randomly just thrown together. Surely one of them can work. And so you, you multiply your chances so that you can have a super unlikely event happen. Um, the problem with this is there isn't evidence for a multiverse. And then it, 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 as a lot of these sort of solutions to get rid of God <laughs> go, it just pushes the question back. Where on earth do we get countless universes? Right? Cause you were having a hard time explaining one universe. Now you have to explain an unlimited potentially number of universes and that they all have different dials on them set differently. Um, and even then you got to start doing the math on how many do we have to have to get a random one that actually has the, the, the constants and quantities that we've got now. Um, and so, yeah, the, this is why a lot of atheists have said a lot have said, um, even the more sarcastic ones that the argument, the argument for fine tuning, the fine tuning of the universe for God's existence is like the strongest argument they think for God's existence. It's very powerful. You guys could check it out if you want to know more about it. Fine tuning argument. Um, let's go to question 11. B. Beth says in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, is the kingdom of God a reference to heaven itself or to rewards? A local pastor says it's about rewards, but I'm skeptical. All right, well, let's look at the passage and think about it. Galatians chapter 5, 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I want, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is, I'm going to read a little bit more because I think it's relevant, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, 
Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right. Why would someone think the kingdom of God is a reference to rewards? I think because this passage would imply, um, and I've heard this before, so this isn't the first time I've heard someone mention this. This passage would imply that if you're living these ways, you're you're not going to heaven. If if inherit the kingdom of God refers to eternal life, you're, you know, like not that they're the same exact thing, but you don't, we'll put it this way. If you view as I do, you don't inherit the kingdom of God without having eternal life and you don't have eternal life without inheriting the kingdom of God, right? They go together. If that's the case, then it's saying that people who are doing these things, those who do these things are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Then that would imply they're not saved. So let's say that you then say, but look, I've got people in my congregation who get drunk on, on a fairly regular basis, who are very divisive, uh, fits of anger, guys that are known for fits of anger, jealousy, right? Um, enmity and strife, sexual immorality. And I'm like, how do I reconcile the fact that they're saved with the idea that they're going to not inherit the kingdom? Well, one one idea would be to simply say, well, that's not what it means. They're not, inherit the kingdom doesn't mean, it means rewards. They're still going to be saved. They just won't inherit rewards in the kingdom. But to me, this is just not going to work. Um, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to attack your pastor or something like that, but we care about the word of God here. You're free to tell me when you think my interpretation doesn't work. I have no qualms about that. But I do not believe that this works because the phrase inherit the kingdom doesn't sound like rewards at all. It sounds like the kingdom, not rewards, but the kingdom. If you just look at the use of the phrase inherit the kingdom in scripture, let's look at some of them. Matthew 25, 34, the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Of the world. Then the others, they will not inherit the kingdom. They're actually not saved. In this, in this parable that Jesus tells. Or, I, yeah, it's kind of a parable. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is what they were. They're not now. He he's, uses all these phrases and he just thinks this doesn't apply to them. But he also wants them to know. If you do live these lifestyles, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I know this is creating tension for people, but we'll, um, let me deal with that in a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Then he talks about inheriting the kingdom, which is being, you know, resurrected into our new bodies and all that. And there's the Galatians one that we mentioned. Then there's Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And this is different. It's no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Um, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, a wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. I I am of the, currently at least, I'm of the gray area of you. Okay, I've just made that term up right now. The gray area of you, let me describe what I think, how I reconcile these different issues. Here's a clear person who's living 
a sinful lifestyle in disobedience to God and they reject the gospel. They're not saved. Here's a person who seems to be living generally in obedience to God. Okay. Not perfectly, but a generally lifestyle of obedience. Um, they're saved and, and, they, and they have faith in Christ, right? They're saved. What if someone who seemed like they were over here starts moving closer and closer to here in their practice, their faith claims are over here, but their life claim, their lifestyles over here. Do I say that they're automatically not saved? Look, how much sin is too much for you to be a Christian? <laughs> I'm not saying how much sin till you lose your salvation. I mean, how much sin in your life is enough where I go, now it means you're not really a Christian. I don't know how to answer that question, but I do know that it puts you into this gray area. If you live a certain lifestyle and I go, you say you're a Christian, but your lifestyle makes me doubt it. So I want you to know this, that no fornicator or unclean person, and you start to give them the warnings. And this is appropriate to give someone who claims the name of Christ, but lives a sinful lifestyle, the warnings that are due for someone who's living that lifestyle. This is something very uncomfortable, difficult to do, but it's a loving and gracious thing to do. They need to be warned. Don't be deceived, Paul says. So yeah, I, I would disagree with um, the view that your your pastor had on this issue. Um, uh, and I understand why. I think I explain why. I think he'd be desiring to have that view. But I think we have to live with the hardship of going, that person's lifestyle, maybe, your own, maybe you're listening right now, it's your lifestyle really seriously brings into question your claims to be a Christian. And you're starting to get tempted. Maybe one of you right now, you're listening, you're starting to get tempted to get all turn all internal and get depressed and feel sorry for yourself. And can I say, stop it, stop it. This is part of the problem. You need to repent because all the hope of Christ is right there. And you might tell yourself, you can't repent. I can't stop. I can't change. I can't help it. This is, this is, it's true that there are life situations and different things you go through that make your, may make your life more difficult, but to say that you can not say no to sin, a lifestyle, not just occasionally falling and failing, but a lifestyle of constantly committing these things, to say that you can't say no to that is not true. You can, and you need to stop believing that lie. And you need to know that those that do these things these are their lifestyles. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. I plead with you to give your life over to God truly. This is a warning and um, it's a loving one. Number 12, let's go to Evan Nygaard who says, why did God allow the child sacrifice in Judges when the man said he will sacrifice anything that walks through the door and then his daughter walks out? Aren't there other nations judged for this action? So this is the story of Jephthah. Um, that you're bringing up, uh, Evan. And there's a debate over whether Jephthah um, really killed his daughter or not. Um, we're going, we've, I've gone on so long, I don't wanna, I don't wanna get into the whole story for the sake of time. Maybe in the future we'll do that, okay? But Jephthah, this guy, um, he wanted victory in a battle that he was going to fight as one of the judges of Israel. And he's like, God, I'll, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. I'll offer it to you as a burnt offering. And then he comes, you know, if you bring me victory when I get home, the first thing that greets me. I, I don't know what he was thinking, right? This seems like a, a, a brazenly foolish thing to say and do. But he says that he'll do it. Um, then he comes home and his daughter comes out to greet him. And then, then the text gets slightly ambiguous. 
because it's it's not a hundred percent. It's just not a hundred percent clear. We have to do a little bit of guesswork. Did she live single for the rest of her life? Like maybe she went towards like devoting you know service in the temple or around the temple area and stuff like that, and she was devoted like as, as a single person to the Lord, or did she actually get burnt? Um, I should say the tabernacle because the temple wasn't there. Uh, and I don't know the answer to this question. Um, I lean slightly towards her being actually offered, but I'm open to the other idea as well. Because it says that, you know, he's going to fulfill his vow. Okay. But but God says not to offer humans to him. He specifically demands they don't do this. He judges, like you said, judges other nations for doing this, says they can't do it. Um, and they should have redeemed her with uh, with an alternate offering. Like you give like 50 shekels or something like that. It's like, even in the law, like you don't do this. You don't do this. But she then says, I'm going to go into the mountains and mourn the fact that I will not have children. So does that mean that the woman merely died childless? That she just never, she devoted herself to service in the temple, kind of like a nun type thing? Or that, um, or that she actually died and she's also mourning that she's going to be childless. It's weird that she focuses on being childless. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this question, but your, your, your question's a little different. You're like, why didn't God stop this from happening? Let's suppose that he did kill his, and she's not a child here, she, like in age wise, she's older than that, but it seems to be, but, um, but still it is his daughter. Why didn't God stop them? Um, unfortunately, this is a question you could ask throughout the entire book of judges. Why didn't God stop fill in the blank? There is so much wickedness of man in the book of judges and the book of judges highlights the failure of the judges. This is one of the themes in the book of Judges. Jephthah fails. Samson fails. In fact, as you read the book, the further you get in the book of Judges, the more failure it gets, the worse it gets, the harder it is to find a happy Bible study in these passages because it's the theme of the wickedness of man and the all of the saviors being having falling short ultimately because Jesus is the one who needs to come and be the ultimate savior. Why didn't God stop them? It's the same answer for why doesn't God stop every evil thing that happens. Right now, something horrible is happening to somebody. God could stop it, but he doesn't. Uh, why? Maybe it's free will. Maybe it's because he's working it together for good. Maybe it's for reasons you simply don't understand. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I, I find that it puts me in a, in, a, in a bad place mentally if I think I have to answer why God doesn't do everything this and then point at every bad thing I can think of and why didn't God do this with that and this with that and this with that I don't know the answers to those questions my heart is content to trust the Lord and to rest in him and this seems not only to be childlike faith but it seems to be very wise this is like the 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 wisdom of of elders to say there are things I don't understand and I'm okay with trusting the one who is worthy of my trust in the middle of those things how it fits in the book of judges is exactly that, to show the failure. Like Gideon starts awesome, ends terrible. Jephthah starts awesome, ends terrible. The humans fall short so bad over and over again. Israel is meant to be a demonstration of the fact that you can not get there on your own. You need Jesus to save you because you're Jephthah. You're the one who's going to make these horrible decisions. Um, God had made it abundantly clear to Jephthah through the Old Testament law that they did have at the time, that this was not to be something they ever did, not a vow they would make, not a vow they would keep if they did. This is not something you do. So if he did it, it was completely on his own. Um, his ignorance of scripture, his, his whatever it was, it was a bad thing. 
All right, number 13. Ben Redman says, we know that self-defense is biblical, but what about assassinations like Project Valkyrie, um, Hitler, or times when killing a leader might save other lives? Are we still bound to their authority? I think Project Valkyrie is a TV show, right? Um, I haven't seen it, but I think I've seen it like like flipping through to see what I want to watch. Um, um, I could be wrong. I, I think, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, whatever it is, maybe, maybe, it, was a, maybe it was a real project on assassinating Hitler. Um, so there's an assassination in scripture and it seems to be celebrated. Um, and it's Ehud and Eglon, if I remember their names right. And it's in the book of Judges as well. Ehud's one of the deliverers and Eglon is this king who's, is it Midianite king, I think? And he's super fat. This is like, he's just super duper fat. And Ehud comes up and he's, the Bible makes a big deal about this. This is like one of those moments where you're like, this is almost like a 80s action movie moment, right? In the Bible. Um, Ehud comes in, he's a left-handed guy, right? I'm left-handed. Well, I write left-handed. I do everything with strength with my right hand. Not that that's relevant to anything we're talking about. Um, so Ehud's left-handed. And so he takes his sword and he hides it on his inner thigh. He's a short sword, hides it on his inner thigh, and he puts it where his left hand can get it. And in the normal pat down, apparently, this is my understanding, that they would give him when he goes to visit the king. Um, they don't catch the placement of the sword because people just don't usually hold it there. Okay, it was an oversight from the security team, but that's how it well, how it is. Um, if you ever watch pat downs at sec airport security pat downs, you're like, you guys aren't really finding things, are you? <laughs> you're done. You can go. Um, at any rate, uh, Ehud comes to Eglon in order to show him, to bring him the offering, the the basically the, the mob payment for the people of Israel who were being oppressed by the Midianites at the time. If it's the Midianites, it might be the Philistines. I forget. Uh, or maybe it was the Moabites, but I don't know. One of the, one of the, one of the groups. So then Ehud comes up and he's, he tells Eglon, and I do get a kick out of this. I can't, maybe it's just because I'm a guy. I get a kick out of this, but he tells Eglon, I have a message for you from God. And Eglon's like, oh, all right. Send everybody out. Like, I don't want anyone else to hear this message but me, you know. So send everybody out and they all go out. And Ehud gives the message, which is him pulling his sword out and stabbing Eglon in the gut with the sword. And the Bible's kind of graphic here. It says that the sword hilt went in so far that it just went, it just went all the way into his body and disappeared into his guts. And then because of the cut, his guts spilled out. And then um, this is an assassination. Then Ehud goes out and he tells, he comes out, he closes the door behind him and he goes, oh yeah, he's in the bathroom. <laughs> he tells, and so they're like, all right, we'll give him some time. And he runs away, right? And by the time they get in there to find out he's dead, Ehud's already gotten away. Then he goes around to Israel and he blows the trumpet and he calls the people to battle. This assassination was the start of a call to battle to retake their own land from oppressors that were, that were um, doing horrible things to them. This was a judge delivering Israel. So, like, here's an assassination in scripture that is actually definitely approved of. I mean, it seems like it to me. It seems like everything around the text seems as though this is a very much approved of. So you can do any assassinations you want, right? <laughs> Obviously not, okay? Obviously you can't just go and assassinate whoever you feel like assassinating whenever you want, for whatever reason you want. Like, um, But you can't say that all of them are always wrong. I would say assassinations, I'm going to do in the name of Jesus. That's wrong. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. But there are earthly kingdoms that do have certain rights and responsibilities to not only protect their own people, but to help others who are struggling and in trouble around them. 
God does actually judge nations for not helping their neighbors. Um, something is good to remember. And so, yeah, there's times where this can can take place. Do I have a list of rules of when? I, I don't personally. I'm just saying you can't rule it out entirely. Um, so you say, are, um, are we still bound to their authority? I, I mean, this is complicated, but I, I have a video on Romans 14 where I talk about like government and when to rebel and things like that. I'll link that in the video description below. Maybe that'll give a better answer since we're going so long today. Number 14, Ambivalence says, hi, Mike. I've uh, never gotten to see one of these live. Well, welcome, Ambi. Glad you're here. Do you think it's wrong if I don't read the Bible regularly? I do read and study, but I don't have a consistent schedule. Um, I don't have a rule for you on this, uh, Ambi. I would I would be hesitant to lay out a policy that says every Christian is is doing something wrong, is sinning if they don't read the Bible this much each day. I would be very hesitant to try to like make that sort of rule for people. Um, so I, while I don't want to make that rule, I also know I've, I've, and I'm not saying you're like this, Ambi, and likely you're not. Like if you're watching my videos and you're, 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 you're obviously wanting extracurricular Bible time, right? Like not just minimal time in the word. So, but I know some people who they don't want to read the Bible. They don't, they just, it's just, it takes energy, it takes focus, and it's just not interested in it. And so they'll come up with reasons. Like I remember hearing a pastor one time, friend who told me, um, and this was to justify his own not, desire to not, I think, read things and not spend any time in the Word. He goes, well, in the New Testament, they didn't have their own Bibles anyways. I mean, they, a lot of them couldn't even read. So, like, why do I have to, like, read every day and read all the time and stuff? And um, I thought that was so funny. Could, could you imagine if I took this 21st century pastor and put him in front of a New Testament Christian in the book of Acts? And the New Testament believer stands there while he says, you know... You're my justification for not reading scripture. See, I look at it this way. You don't know how to read. Isn't that correct? And they go, yes, that's right. I don't know how to read. And they go, well, not only that, but you don't own your own copy of the Bible anyways. Isn't that right? And they go, yes, I, I don't own my own copy of the Bible. So your inability to read more and to absorb more scripture is proof that I don't need to, even though I have the ability. I just wonder how that New Testament believer would respond. <laughs> Can I have your ability to read, sir? Can I have your copy of the Bible? Oh, please, sir. And then they would show you what it's like to love the word of God, I'm sure. Um, so I, I think we have to be careful here and just not have the attitude where we're disregarding scripture, but not have that sort of overly strict view of like, you must read every single day, you know, at a certain amount for a certain time at a certain time of day. I, I want to avoid those rules. Make sure my, my advice to you would just be this. Make sure you are loving the word of God, loving, loving, loving the scriptures. And even if your heart doesn't always feel it, ah, there are ways to love things. Even when your heart doesn't feel love, that's often what the most loving love is, is when you do this because of commitment, that's where the love really shines through. So love the word. Yeah. Number 15, help me. Jesus says, hello, pastor Mike. I was wondering what your interpretation of the parable in Luke 19 verses 11 through 27 is specifically what you think the slaves and the mina represent luke 19 um as always my off-the-cuff interpretations are not as good as me sitting down and studying for many hours before i speak on something but let's read through it now as they heard these things he spoke another parable because he was near jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of god would appear immediately I, I like that. I like the little phrasing we go. Okay, so this is, there's a problem, which is they think that, that sort of 
all of the things that Jesus, his first and second coming are going to happen kind of at the same time. The kingdom of God is going to happen immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom in return. So this Jesus effectively going from heaven to earth to receive a kingdom in return. So he called, um, or I, well, maybe not heaven to earth. Maybe I should change my, that statement is, oh, let me read more and I'll explain. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. Um, here ultimately is going, he's going from earth to heaven. I think in this parable, they don't know it yet, but Jesus is, his trip is going to be after he dies and rises, he's going away to a far place to receive a kingdom in return. He's waiting at the father's right hand until the father makes his enemies his footstool. And then he returns in glory. So this is talking about the space between the first and second coming. Um, the servants are all those who are waiting on the kingdom during that time that are faithful to Christ. Uh, he delivers to them 10 minas, which is a quantity of money and said to them, do business till I come, uh, 10 minas here. Like the little note in the new King James says, uh, mina is each worth about three months of salary. So a significant amount of money, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Okay. This is talking ultimately about, um, not his servants, but the citizens, which are ultimately the people of Israel who as a whole, rejected the Messiah. Not all of them did because he has his servants, of course, those who do receive him. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, that he commanded these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. The men came first, then came the first saying, master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. Now, some people say, hey, maybe you know, those who serve Jesus really well, you'll actually have more of a higher authority position in the eternal kingdom. And that may well be true. Um, and the second came saying, master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, uh, you also be over five cities, which implies difference in not that we receive heaven, but in what we receive in heaven differences, depending on our lives. Then another came saying, master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. Not a good idea. Uh, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, this is interesting. Um, collect what you didn't deposit, reap what you didn't sow. It sounds deceitful because it's his money. He deposited the money with them and he wants to collect it back with interest effectively. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. What then did you not put my money in the bank? That at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So there's at least a desire to like say, hey, at least there's a safe investment. Just put the money in the bank. You did nothing with it. You're lying when you say this was about me. You wanted to live your own life and you set aside everything that I gave you. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the man who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Okay, we have three different categories of people that I'll, I think, relate to in this parable. One, the people who are um, faithful and receive not only heaven, but rewards as a result of their faithfulness to Christ. Heaven they get purely by the grace of Christ. Rewards in heaven is um, 
going to be related to the service that they did for Christ, um, the faithfulness they had. Then you've got a second category, someone who probably is saved. I'm guessing he's saved here, right? Because he still seems to be brought into the kingdom, but he's not given any, you're not ruling over any cities. There's no, none of those rewards. So he wasted, he, he, it wasn't that he lived a debaucherous, sinful life, but he wasted the gifts God gave him and didn't use them for his kingdom. Then you have the third category, which is the enemies of Christ who didn't want him to reign over them. And he goes, and slay them before me. Talk about imprecatory, uh, which we opened the video with there. Um, and so that's the third category of the unsaved, the unsaved who reject Jesus and they don't want his rulership. So there's a category of a Christian who is un, uh, basically who accomplishes nothing, who accomplishes nothing. Um, let me give you another example in scripture that talks about the same kind of person. It's in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, do, 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 do. He talks about building. Um, I'll just read. According to the grace of God, God given to me like a skill master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. He's talking about ministry work in building terms. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So whether it's good, important things, or if they're building with like temporary, burnable, destroyable things, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. This is kind of like the Mina parable, right? You had a certain amount of ministry you did in your life and the quality of the ministry will one day be tested. Just like when the, the, the ruler came back and said, what have you got from the investment I gave you? And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work work is burned, the man's not burned, his work is burned, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So we don't get a man who who lived in a horribly sinful lifestyle that that then is still saved. What you're getting is a man who was not, I mean, obviously there was some sin involved, okay? I'm just saying he wasn't like, I'm sleeping with prostitutes every night and I just get drunk all day long. I'm not, not that guy, but this guy has major issues with his ministry. Like he is in, he's serving people in ministry, but there's major problems with it. Like it's his ego, it's his arrogance, it's self promoting, whatever it is, there's things that are wrong with it. He'll still be saved, but he'll have no fruit from his labor. I think that's kind of like that guy that had the Mina that hid it in a handkerchief. Um, similar, not the same. All right, let's go to the next question. Number 16. Uh, Mabem almost says, is it biblical to be nice? My boyfriend is extremely honest and it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Does he have a biblical obligation to be nice with his words? I think I should not get involved in this discussion. <laughs> Some of you understand right away. Um, <laughs> this is such a black and white framing of your issues, of your situation that I don't think I can fairly answer it because my answer is going to be put into that scenario. There, there are times to be nice. There are and, and times to hold your tongue and not to tell people what you think and to overlook a, a, a problem or a, a sin even that someone's, and there's other times to call it out and to be totally open and real with it. And I, I don't think I can, I can weigh in on this. Um, yeah. Um, most of the time, more often than not, when I've counseled couples and one of them says like, 
you know, he needs to be nicer. I, we need to find examples, right? And then you let the other person talk and they share. And most of the time, the truth is more in the middle, right? Where it's like, yeah, you do need to be nicer, but you also need to be more willing to accept sometimes the discomfort of him saying things that need to be said. And and they both need to be like balanced out more often than not. That's the case. So it makes me hesitant to uh, weigh in too much on this. Let's go to question 17. Um, and oh, by the way, I'll back up 16. Okay. Scripture does both. Scripture does both. Like, oh, may the God of all peace fill you with all joy and peace. And it's like, and then Jesus over here says like, yeah, um, uh, burn them with fire. <laughs> so there is um, an appropriateness depending on what's going on. All right, 17. Jared Matthews, any tips for how to become less opposed to God's judgment and see it as holy? It can feel like an unloving God sometimes. Um, Jared, I, I so sympathize with this question. Um, good for you. Th that's a huge step right there already. Because you're, 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 I think what you're doing is you're recognizing uh, my heart's out of sorts here. I should love God's judgment, but sometimes I, I, I feel my emotions. I feel like that was not representative of the character I thought you had, God. You've, you've done the most important part, which is identify the problem. The problem is my heart, not in God. Like if there's a flaw in what God is doing or in my perception of what God is doing, I know it's in my perception. Like that's easy. Most reasonable, rational thing to say is I'm obviously wrong here. There are some people that are so smart when, when they go, oh no, that's not right. You just assume, okay, they're probably right. I'm probably wrong. I just don't know why yet. Maybe they can tell me. God is definitely on that list, right? He's the only one who belongs on that list at all times. Anytime I disagree with him, I'm wrong. Anytime my heart feels weird about something he did, my heart's wrong. I just don't know why yet. And it's okay if you stay there. I never know why, or at least I will eventually, but not, not in this life. In Revelation, there's an encouraging thing to me, and maybe this will encourage you, where they're praising God for his judgment and his justice. And this is in the Psalms too. He's praised for his justice. I think that wherever you currently feel uncomfortable with God judging, and you're not alone at all in that, that there's a day coming when you'll go, oh, I see how good it is now. And you can at least say, I'm waiting on that day. I know it will come and I will wait on it. And that is a wonderful step of faith. Lord, I know it's coming. I will have that understanding. Like Revelation speaks about those rejoicing in your judgments. I will one day rejoice in them too. Right now, I'm just lacking some understanding. Um, that's a, a beautiful perspective to have. Um, in addition, as I mentioned like three times now in the same Q&A, it's interesting that we, we, we don't recognize how holy God is, we don't recognize how bad sin is, and we don't recognize how good justice is. I, I've never put those three together like that before. I'm just saying maybe this is something the Lord has for you guys. Um, how holy God is, if you realize how perfectly holy he is, it will help you with this. So I would encourage you to, in your studies, in your thinking, and in your prayers, focus on God's holiness, his perfect purity, his total goodness. And goodness doesn't just mean lovingness. It means perfect, morally perfectness. You know, he's totally holy. Focus on this in your prayer and in your studying the word. Focus on the badness of sin. Because, you know, for example, there's been in your life a sin you did, and the first time you did it, you felt really bad. And the next time you did it, you didn't feel as bad. And a little while later, you didn't really feel bad at all. That's the problem with my heart. My conscience gets hardened to the sins that I'm exposed to the most so that I don't, I don't feel that sin is that bad. Even though I'll say it, I don't feel it. And so I recommend you to refresh your heart on this 
one of the best ways to see how bad sin is, is to look at Jesus on the cross and to say, look, if Jesus had to do that for my sin, then my sin's probably worse than I think. Another way to look at it is to see God's judgment, to look at God's actual judgment and go, if that's what sin deserves, then it must be really bad. Like, I didn't think drunkenness was that bad. It's like, you know, some people have some issues with drinking and, you know, whatever. But God's like putting on a list of people that get judged. It must be really bad. And so you you, you just let your mind change on those things. Um, and the other one was the goodness of God's justice. And for this, I think you can look at things that do hit you. There's things in this world that hit your justice nerve. And you go, oh, that's so wrong. Let me give you a cheesy example. Because um, I can give you hard examples. I can give you examples of, of, of rape or of... Uh, the Holocaust or of, of all sorts of horrible things and domestic violence and things like that. Um, but there's another one that gets me and it's scams online, online scammers. Every day or so, I have to, I have to go and block a new fake YouTube account that's impersonating me, Mike Winger, trying to get you guys to follow them and trying to pretend to be me and be like, I have a word from you for the, for the, from the Lord for you. And they're doing all this stuff ultimately to scam you. God wants you to donate to this to this orphanage in Africa. And he's told me, and I would never do this to you guys, um, but uh, they're doing this and it's not a real orphanage. It's just a scam. Every day we're deleting these, blocking these YouTube channels. I can't stand these scammers because they take advantage of the most like genuine, vulnerable, sincere people who are just a little bit naive. Like they're not, they're not like, scam radar up like I am, or maybe a lot of you are, but a lot of you aren't. A lot of you are like, you just, I just meet people and just assume that everything's kosher, you know? And that's like a wonderful quality, but it makes you an easier victim. And, um, and man, it drives me nuts. So scams, scam call centers where they pretend they're your credit card company and they're scamming, especially the elderly out of their, their retirement income and leaving them destitute. And, um, my justice nerve gets, gets pricked there. And all of a sudden, I know exactly how bad sin is. And I can think of all sorts of imprecatory psalms I can pray about these things. What I'm saying is there are some things that bring up your knowledge of the wickedness of sin. So Jared, think about that. Think about the things that trigger your, your justice nerve and recognize that all sin is that bad or worse. It's just our calloused conscience towards sin that makes us feel like God is doing something wrong when he judges. Uh, oops, I'm going the wrong way. There we go. Okay, 18. Um, Notila, Notilla? I don't know how to pronounce your name, sorry. Is dancing allowed in church? Can it be considered worship? Well, I think a better question to ask is, is, is dancing allowed in your church? <laughs> and, and if it is, then you can talk about the questions of how it can be used to glorify God. And if it's something that is not allowed in your church and accepted and embraced in your church, then you shouldn't do it. I'm, I'm open to either. And now I'm not part of a church culture that does dancing, so it would be odd for me, but I could totally understand how you could create a culture where it becomes acceptable. And if, and dancing is not inherently evil. We have dancing in scripture, David danced before the Lord. So we have dancing as part of worship. We don't have it as part of a congregational worship in the New Testament. Okay, I don't know of any instances of dancing in that regard, um, but that's not to say it would be impossible. Um, there are some pitfalls with dancing and worship as it becomes about you showboating, getting attention for yourself, feeling special as you're dancing. That obviously that doesn't mean that it can't be done, but there's a potential of a problem there that people need to work through and think about. 
there's also the reality of like, well, what clothes are you wearing? Well, okay, when you're normally walking down the street, you're not doing the same things you do when you're dancing. And when you're dancing, you could be sending signals, all right? <laughs> and this is something we should be aware of and should be careful about and thoughtful about. So all that stuff has to be addressed and dealt with. Is it bringing glory to God or me? Is it being done in a way that is edifying to the body and not just focused on me? Is it acceptable in the culture of my church? Um, and uh, and what kind of dancing and all that sort of thing. So I, I would be open to it. But if it's like your agenda is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into a church and I'm going to make it into a dancing church. I'm the only one there, but I'm going to dance because I can dance before the Lord. That's inconsiderate of the other people in the body. I'll give you an illustration. I like to stand during worship. I like to raise my hands during worship. But if I'm visiting a church where people don't stand and don't raise their hands, I don't either because it's not about me. I'm part of a congregational worship. And so they're, they're once, I want to be a blessing to those around me, not just turn worship into, it's all about me. So I think that can be wise. Uh, 19, Kamanzi Samuel says, does Matthew 7.21 tell us that works are necessary to get saved? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Um, I mean, my answer is this is no. And I think that what we have to understand is the close relationship of works to salvation. It's a, let me try to say it carefully. It's a close relationship. It's not a causal relationship or it's, or maybe I could put it this way. We don't want to reverse the causality of the relationship. I'm making it more confusing, aren't I? I apologize. Let me say it again. Um, here's two formulas. One of them's right. One of them's wrong. And think of it, it's like a math problem, like two plus two equals four. Um, in this case, some people think it's salvation or, or, or faith plus works equals salvation. Right? Faith plus works equals salvation. Others would say it's faith equals salvation plus works. Ah, that's the, that's the one I would go with, right? So if you are saved, it will result in works because that's, that's what salvation does to you. Examples of this are you become born again. You're indwelt with the spirit. You are now being led by the spirit. You are now bringing, bringing, um, a, a desire of obedience to Christ along with the empowerment of God to walk in his will. He works in you to will and do according to his good pleasure. So works is a result of salvation. And that's why Jesus can say, just saying I'm your Lord isn't, you're not going to, but you need to also be doing the will of my father because that is what it looks like when you mean it, when you say I'm Lord. If I say Jesus is Lord and I mean it, you're going to see the works in my life. If I don't mean it, you won't see the works. So there's a close relationship between works and salvation, but the causality is salvation brings works as opposed to works bringing salvation. The only works that bring my salvation are the works of Jesus ultimately. All right, let's go to the last question for today, which comes from Howdy Ye I Ye. Howdy Ye I Ye says, What do you think about beards? Hmm. I heard a pastor say that it is a prideful thing to wear a beard and also wrong. Though I don't agree. Uh, do, <laughs> I'm going to stroke my beard the whole time now. Do you think that you do either as you have one? Well, Hmm. Hmm. I am so proud of my beard. <laughs> um, um, I would be very concerned about the kind of person 
I mean, I'm going to say this genuinely here. It's a red flag, at least. It's a red flag, at least, for someone to be like, literally just having a beard is evidence of pride. Someone saying that is a little scary to me. Because if he has that kind of logic with his other rules he gives you, there's going to be a lot of weird things going on in your Christianity. So um, I would be very, very careful listening to the reasoning of a person like that. It's also, on the face of it, obviously not true. In scripture, mostly all the guys had beards. Pretty much all of them. They just had beards. Jesus had a beard. The disciples had beards. It was considered a shameful thing in the Old Testament and, and probably the New too. When when a person's beard was plucked out, like it was it was it was a way of shaming them to pluck out their beard. Does that mean beards are about pride? No, that's an, a weird way to interpret the scripture there. Like it, it could shame somebody to make them run around to take their clothes off and send them out naked. That shames them too, but that doesn't mean clothes are about pride. Okay. They're, that's not what it means. So, um, yeah, like the, I don't understand the logic of this, this pastor. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm just getting a little sleepy here. And now my, my, my filters are failing me. (laughs) We all need filters guys. Um, but the logic of this is so wacky. God gave you a beard so you could shave it. Or else you're arrogant. Like, I mean, it sounds more to me like this guy has a pride issue with his sh- his non-beard condition is an er- issue of pride in his life. And, and he's projecting that onto others. So um, I would be deeply concerned about this. So was Jesus proud? No. Was Paul the Apostle proud? No. Does he think that they all had shaved faces? I mean, yeah, I think it's weird. Um, if I do shave my beard personally, my wife... I did this years ago once and she was like, grow it back. <laughs> she doesn't want to see. She she likes it better with the beard. And uh she's right. <laughs> That's just how it is. You know, God God gave us beards. Men. Men. Sorry for you to be men. Have beards. Nothing wrong with that. You got hair on your chest, good for you. <laughs> you got hair on your chin, good for you. So yeah, I think that's that's such a silly thing. Yeah. Thank you for asking the question. Because there's this, people experience this all over the place where what, what happens is it's a cultural rule. Your pastor probably grew up in a culture where men were supposed to shave their faces and it was considered wrong, not just not common, but actually wrong in his culture for men to grow beards. He then projected this onto scripture and is using, using the name of God and calling it pride, telling people that they shouldn't grow beards. All we're doing now is we're taking our transitory cultural things and we're um, projecting them onto the scripture in the name of Christianity. This happens all the time, all the time. And we want to make sure we stick to just what scripture says. So good question. Good example of of taking the Bible um, and just replacing it with your own cultural views. So yeah, you don't, you know, you don't have to, I wouldn't, you know, maybe you don't want to wear a beard around him or around that church, or maybe you need to not fellowship at a church that's going to be giving people such kind of problems. But I, I would consider confronting the pastor and then gently confronting, saying, hey, you know, here, here's what scripture says. Um, look up, look up, you know, Aaron has a beard in the book of Psalms. Or like, look up the word beard in the Bible and you'll see several examples of this. Um, Aaron has a beard and it says like, oh, how good and lovely it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like, oil running down the beard of Aaron. It's, it's, it's used as a, as a wonderful symbolism of a picture of him being anointed. And it's, that's, that's like the sweetness of, of, um, unity.
All right, y'all, that's it for 20 questions. Thanks for sticking with me for this epic Q&A, I hope. And um, I will see you guys in two weeks, I think. I'm spacing these out because I'm still... I don't intend to keep talking about this. I really don't. It's probably the last time I'll mention it. I'm still recovering from long COVID, uh, doing what I can, doing everything I can to do better with it. But it keeps hitting me in these like cycles where it's like, boom, and I'm down for days. And then I'm just getting back up at the moment. And so um, I can't really predict how long things are going to take. The, the, the Women in Ministry series, I'm getting it done as much as I can. I study, but I have so much to do prep-wise. It's still number one on my on my list of things to do. It's just that it takes so many hours to prepare one video that it's going to be who knows how long there's only two more videos left and then i'm done with the series and we're going to be taking a little break i have something special i'm planning and then i'll start in the book of hebrews at some point later this year that's all i got to say lord bless you let's pray um father we we pray that you would help us to see the heart of the real issues in our lives um where we are dealing with pride where we are dealing with um our own sinful tendencies um or wrong beliefs um even even wrongful self-condemnation, all that stuff, Lord, just give us real discernment, biblical and Christian and Holy Spirit-led discernment about ourselves and our lives so we could pull planks out of our eyes, so we could hold up the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, so we could wield the sword of the Spirit, um, that we would be a people who are spiritually strong, uh, whatever condition our bodies are in, that we'd be spiritually strong and healthy and at peace. In Jesus' name, amen.